uh, welcome. This is the uh, next um, podcast, which is on the infratemporal and pterygopalatine fossae. Having covered the autonomic nervous system layout of the head and neck, the temporal fossa and the basic osteology of the skull, it's valuable, I think, to tie these areas together uh, with a recap of the infratemporal and pterygopalatine fossae. The infratemporal fossa is a complicated region at the skull base. It's deep to the masseter muscle, physically associated with both the temporal and the pterygopalatine fossae, and which acts really as a relay station for the vascular entry and exit to the deep face, for sensory and autonomic distribution to the V2 region, and therefore effectively with infraorbital termination, but also connections to the nasal, palatal and pharyngeal innovation and secretion. The borders uh, of the infratemporal fossa, it's a wedge-shaped area located deep, as I've said, to the mass of the muscle, deep to the zygomatic arch, and it directly communicates with the temporal fossa, anterosuperiorly, and deeply with the pterygopalatine fossa, the latter, the latter via a fissure between the lateral pterygoid plate and the back of the infratemporal crest of the maxilla, not surprisingly called the pterygomaxillary fissure. And that pterygomaxillary fissure, if you hold the skull up laterally, you'll see that space going into the depth of the face between the lateral pterygoid plate and the back of the masseter is where the maxillary artery moves in and the maxillary veins come out. The boundaries of this infratemporal fossa are therefore effectively both bony and muscular. Specifically, laterally, is the condylar process and the ramus and the neck, I guess, of the mandible as well. Medially, which is the depth, is actually the lateral pterygoid plate that's the deepest part of this uh, fossa, along with the tensor and levata palati muscles, the so-called veli palatini, veli is really curtain, and the superior constrictor. Uh, they're effectively... Um, the lateral pterygoid plate, behind it is the tensor and the levata palati and the superior constrictor as I've said. In front of the lateral pterygoid plate between it and the maxilla as I've said is the pterygomaxillary fissure through which the infratemporal fossa communicates with the pterygopalatine fossa. It's kind of a, a deep entry point. The lateral wall is the ramus of the mandible and the coronoid process. So to get to this area, obviously, in the cadaver, what you need to do is to ensure that you remove virtually the entire zygomatic arch. If you take that out, sometimes with the head of the mandible and even the neck of the mandible opening up the TMJ, the temporomandibular joint, taking all of the zygomatic arch out as far as the zygomatico uh, maxillary suture even further, uh, then you've got to remove the coronoid process and the insertion of the temporalis and that allows you into the region of the infratemporal fossa. Anteriorly is the posterior border, the so-called infratemporal surface or crest of the maxillary sinus, which contains the small foramina for the posterior superior alveolar nerves. Uh, that's an entry point for dentists, and also the posterior superior alveolar vessels. And here there's a gap really between the greater wing of the sphenoid and the maxilla, and that's really the inferior orbital fissure at that point. 
The posterior limit of the infratemporal fossa is actually the carotid sheath. And the roof is the greater wing of the sphenoid, and laterally it's not bony, where the temporal and the infratemporal fossae meet under the zygomatic arch. And the floor of this is usually, not always, but usually the medial pterygoid muscle. The roof of the region is actually filled in by the greater wing of the sphenoid, which houses uh, the foramen rotundum. Uh, but above the foramen ovale and the foramen spinosum also can be seen if you're just going really to the region of the base of the skull. The nerve scene here is actually the mandibular division of the trigeminal along with the middle meningeal artery. Uh, and, of course, the region divides effectively the termination of the maxillary artery. So the other and only other structures in this region to consider, therefore, are the mandibular nerve, obviously, uh, the terminations of the maxillary artery, the pterygoid musculature, uh, and some of the other muscles of mastication, along, I suppose, with the otic ganglion, which we've already mentioned. So then, posteriorly, also, the boundaries also include the tympanic plate, the mastoid, the styloid process of the temporal bone, and superiorly is really the infratemporal surface, uh, which is the inferior surface of the greater wing of the sphenoid bone. So that's the area that we're actually talking about. Now, I think before really reviewing this podcast or perhaps listening to it, it might be recommended to re-review AHN for the uh, Head and Neck 4 podcast, which was on the autonomic nervous supply uh, of the head and neck. And uh, also a bit of AHN 5, which is the podcast on the osteology of the region with an emphasis on the maxilla and the sphenoid. The fifth cranial nerve also requires some degree of revision from AHN 6. And so if you care to go back through those old uh, podcasts, then they are relevant for this discussion. The contents of this, the infratemporal fossa is a relay station for entry and exit of arteries and veins to the depth of the face for obviously the coordination really of the parasympathetic nervous system synapsing through the pterygopalatine ganglion for the distribution of pseudomotor fibres to the numerous glands of the face, the inferior orbit, the nose, the pharynx and palate, and for the requisite sensation of this region. Pterygopalatine fossa, pterygopalatine ganglion, has a pharyngeal communication. It communicates through the sphenopalatine foramen with the nose. It continues on as the infraorbital nerves and vessels through the infraorbital region covering the middle third of the face. And then it has a descending component which goes down to the palate. Everything moving forward into the hard or bony palate is called greater. So greater palatine artery, greater palatine nerve. Everything moving back in the soft palate is called lesser, lesser palatine artery, lesser palatine nerve. So it's a fairly basic kind of arrangement if you appreciate um, uh, that. And uh, basically one landmark is the lateral pterygoid and it allows really I think the appreciation of the termination of the maxillary artery as well as the ramifications of V3. So we've effectively said all we need to say about this region but let's go through it in a little bit more detail. The muscles. There's some continuation here with the muscles, obviously the temporal fossa, the temporalis, and the masseter. And they've already been described in an earlier podcast in the skull, in part of the osteology, in AHN5. The infratemporal fossa has obviously the muscles of mastication. These are 
branchial muscles, the temporalis, the masseter, the medial and the lateral pterygoid. And the pterygoids are located within the fossa. All right. The masseter, we need to go through that briefly, I suppose. Um, a quadrilateral robust muscle with two heads. The larger superficial head arises from a tough aponeurosis around the zygomatic bone and the arch, really the inferior or anterior two-thirds of the arch with fibres that pass inferiorly and also posteriorly to insert into the angle of the mandible on its front and the lateral ramus. One might think of the inner insertion of the medial pterygoid, which is a bit similar, um, separating it into a kind of watershed muscle within the floor of the mouth. So the insertion of the medial pterygoid on the inner aspect of the mandible looks a little bit like the insertion of the masseter on the outer aspect, is what I'm trying to say. One doesn't think quite so much about the deep head of the masseter, which is more slender and muscular, arising more typically from the lower border posteriorly of the whole of the medial surface of the zygomatic arch. So people do think of a sort of deeper and more superficial head. And this is to be inserted in the up half of the ramus and up as high in some people as the coronoid process if they've got a rather hypertrophic masseter. Um, the muscles of uh, mastication, of course, are all innervated by the anterior division of the mandibular nerve. That's the V3, the motor nucleus. And that's specific from the precentral gyrus, the genu of the internal capsule, the motor nucleus of five, and V3 then by individual branches. Um, the action of the muscle is to elevate the mandible and raise the lower jaw, in effect really to shut the mouth. And uh, it parallels the medial pterygoid, but it's stronger. And its superficial fibres of the masseter can protrude the jaw. The lateral pterygoid, the muscle has two heads, but some variability. Um, the upper head is smaller, more superficial, originating in the infratemporal crest of the greater wing of the sphenoid bone, and it inserts into an area which is really, some people call it the pterygoid fovea, which is beneath the medial end of the mandibular head, as well as the articular disc of the fibrous capsule of the TMJ. There's a fair bit of expansion into that. The lower or inferior head arises from the length of the lateral pterygoid plate, quite close to the skull base, inserting onto the neck of the condyloid process uh, of the mandible. And uh, it's innovated, as we know, by the mandibular nerve. The primary function of the muscle is actually to pull the head of the condyle out of the mandibular fossa along the articular eminence. It kind of effectively, therefore, protrudes the mandible and... Uh, it assists in opening the jaw, whereas a kind of unilateral action forces it to move as a contralateral excursion in, in association with the medial pterygoids, which is kind of slewing the um, uh, jaw from one side to the other. So in summary, the lateral pterygoid really is the only muscle of mastication that depresses the mandible and that opens the jaw. And uh, that can be assisted, of course, by some of the suprahyoid muscles like the digastric, the mylohyoid, the geniohyoid as well. The medial pterygoid um, also consists of two kind of interlocking heads, most of it arising as a deep head from the inner surface of the lateral pterygoid plate and that pterygoid fossa, which is really the depth between the medial and lateral pterygoid plates, there's also a smaller superficial slip which arises 
from the back of the maxillary tuberosity and a small pyramidal process on the back of the palatine bone. And the muscle actually passes backwards and downwards, kind of interdigitating with the lateral pterygoid muscle. And the medial pterygoid is inserted as a tenderness lamina into the medial surface of the ramus, as I've said, over a similar area, but internally to where the masseter is inserted into the ramus externally, running really from the angle of the mandible right up to the level of the mandibular foramen. So it can kind of embrace the inner aspect of the mandibular foramen a bit. Um, and these muscles act, this muscle acts to close the jaw, and it's the great chewing muscle, uh, particularly uh, very well developed in, uh, in ruminants. The medial pterygoid is actually a bit unusual in its innovation. It's innovated by the nerve to the medial pterygoid, but that's also a central relay station for the innovation of the tensor muscles, the tensor tympani and tensor pilati. And this nerve can run through the otic ganglion, and uh, it, it's a definitive part of the motor route. Um, and basically, it, it comes from the main trunk of V3, usually before its division. The other muscles tend to be innervated by the anterior division of V3, but there's some variation um, in this. Um, the outer surface of the muscle lies against the bare mandible. It's separated a little bit by the lateral pterygoid as well as by a little ligament called the sphenomandibular ligament and the maxillary artery, the mandibular nerve and its branches, uh, which are there, the inferior alveolar and the lingual. We'll go through these later. The um, Some people call the combined insertion of the medial pterygoid uh, as a so-called, uh, with a masseter, as a kind of pterygo-masseteric sling. And I think you can think of it as kind of an inner and outer aspect slinging around the ramus of the mandible. The inner surface of the muscle is actually, that's the medial pterygoid, is in very close relationship to the tensor pilati, against the tongue to the styloglossus, and against the pharynx to the salpingopharyngeus muscle. And uh, both the styloglossus and salpingopharyngeus actually separate the medial pterygoid away um, from the superior constrictor. They're running in different directions, admittedly. Um, the muscle receives its blood supply from the pterygoid and buccal branches of the maxillary artery, but there are muscular branches of the second portion of the maxillary artery at that level. There can be some supply also to this region from the ascending palatine artery, um, which is a branch of the facial. Now, um, V3... Um, is coming and uh, innovating this region, as I've said before, and this runs through the foramen nabali, which is just above the point where we're talking about at the base of the skull. And that runs as a larger anterior sensory nerve and a smaller kind of posterior motor nerve all running through the foramen nabali. The branches that you'll see in this region when you do your dissection, if you've cut out the area uh, well, um, particularly taking enough of the zygomatic arch, you'll see the auriculotemporal nerve, the buccal nerve, and the lingual nerve, and the inferior alveolar nerve.
the um, sensory nerve there has a small motor component, which is the nerve to mylohyde. And this appears just before the uh, entry point into the mandibular foramen of the inferior alveolar nerve. And this pierces the sphenomandibular ligament and uh, it innervates the mylohyde muscle and the small anterior belly of digastric just in front of it. The anterior belly of digastric doesn't get a Guernsey. It's not called the nerve to anything. It's the nerve to mylohyde. So this area has a large anterior sensory nerve with a tiny motor component. The small posterior motor nerve is all motor except it has a tiny sensory component, the sensory component being the buccal nerve innervating the mucosa over the inner aspect of the cheek around the uh, second and last molar. And that's not to be confused with the buccal branch of the facial nerve. The main motor nerve, of, uh, of course, um, uh, is all of the motor nerve to the muscles of mastication, which we've already mentioned. It's a little bit more complex than that in the sense that the chorda tympani joins the lingual nerve here for parasympathetic postganglionic branches from the submandibular ganglion. These are the so-called GVE or general visceral efferent cells. And for taste as well, these are the so-called SVA or special visceral afferent cells. We don't like the term visceral, but that's what they're called because they're the viscera of the uh, branchial musculature. The auriculotemporal nerve, of course, transmits the postganglionic fibres from the otic ganglion uh, through to the parotid gland, and these are coming from the preganglionic lesser uh, petrosal nerve, which is part of the glossopharyngeal. The other area that we need to consider is the maxillary artery here, and this is particularly seen in this segment. It can have a variable relationship depending on its relationship to the lateral pterygoid muscle but it's typically divisible into three component parts. Everybody sort of asks, what are the ten branches of the maxillary artery? And people think that's a sort of silly question, but in a number of ways what we're asking is really what is the basic um, uh, functional separation of the maxillary artery? And it has three component parts. The first we could call the mandibular part. The second, because it's around the pterygoid region, we might call it the pterygoid part. And the third, because it moves into the depth of the face through the pterygomaxillary fissure, as we mentioned before, is the so-called pterygopalatine portion. So the mandibular section has five branches, the pterygoid section has five branches typically, and then the pterygopalatine section may have five branches, but this can vary a little bit. The mandibular section typically runs on the lateral pterygoid, but sometimes it can be deep to it and running on the medial pterygoid, and that depends on the nature of the dissection, the orientation of the muscles. But the branches include something that runs in front of the tympanic membrane and something running behind it. So the thing that runs in front is the deep auricular artery. The thing that runs behind it is the anterior tympanic artery. They straddle both sides of the tympanic membrane. Pretty easy to remember. The big artery that we are interested in which runs straight up the foramen spinosum and straight into the base of the skull, into the middle cranial fossa, is the middle meningeal artery. And uh, uh, the accessory meningeal artery is then the next one. So this can run through the foramen ovale, or sometimes there's a little foramen between the foramen ovale and the foramen spinosum, which is called the foramen of 
Vesalius. Vesalius was a Belgian 16th century anatomist. Um, and then the next is running down the mandibular foramen into the mandible itself, the inferior alveolar, or we used to call it the inferior dental artery. So there are five branches. The real one one needs to remember about is the middle meningeal artery, and that's the one you're going to be asked about. But there is also an artery running in front of and behind the tympanic membrane, deep auricular and anterior tympanic. There's an accessory meningeal artery, which typically supplies the blood supply to the trigeminal ganglion. And then there is uh, also the inferior dental or alveolar artery. Pretty easy to remember. The pterygoid part is also pretty easy to remember. We're talking about five branches, but they're all muscular. Usually there are a couple of arterial branches to the temporalis, there's one to the masseter, there's one to the lateral, and one to the medial pterygoid. So that's the five branches. They're related to the muscles of mastication. And then the third portion, which can be a little variable, goes into the pterygopalatine fossa, but again, it needs to connect to the nose, the pharynx, the palate, and the face. And so in order to do that, it basically runs through the sphenopalatine foramen into the nose, where it's typically called the sphenopalatine artery. It'll run down the descending palatine canal uh, and then runs uh, forward into the hard palate as the greater palatine artery, runs backwards into the soft palate as the lesser palatine artery. It'll then run through a little so-called palato-vaginal canal, which relates to the sphenoid, and that runs through, and that's called the pharyngeal artery or the pharyngeal branch of the maxillary artery. And then it becomes a termination in the middle third of the face where it becomes the infraorbital artery. Before doing so, it most typically will send branches into the upper maxilla as what are called posterior superior alveolar nerves, and that, uh, or in this case artery, pardon me, posterior superior alveolar artery. And so those are typically the kind of five branches, a sphenopalatine, greater and lesser palatine, pharyngeal, posterior superior alveolar and infraorbital. I've given you actually six, so greater and lesser palatine would come from one artery. So the arteries actually match the nerves, basically, of the pterygopalatine ganglion. And the first part runs typically, as I've said, of the maxillary artery between the neck of the mandible and the sphenomandibular ligament, on the lower border of the lateral pterygoid muscle. The second part runs usually superficial to the lateral pterygoid muscle, but deep, obviously, to the insertion of the temporalis. And the third part runs typically medially between the two heads of the lateral pterygoid muscle. And as I've said, this is an artery that gives branches to the external auditory meatus, to the middle ear, to the muscles of the region, a bit to the skull and dura mater through the middle meningeal and accessory meningeal, and uh, to the branching continuation of the pterygopalatine fossa. The inferior alveolar or inferior dental descends with similar nerve, the inferior alveolar or inferior dental nerve entering the mandibular foramen, supplies the teeth, the gums, the mandible, the skin over the chin, finishes as a mental artery, and it has also a little attending mylohyoid artery. The middle meningeal, I think we've spoken about before, but this ascends typically between the roots of the auriculotemporal nerve. It's a bit posterolateral to the mandibular nerve, that is V3, lying on the lateral surface of the tensor palati muscle, and that separates it actually from the auditory or eustachian tube, pharyngotympanic tube, all the same name. 
and to remind intracranially, of course, it runs on the floor of the middle cranial fossa. It divides into a frontal and a parietal branch on the greater wing of the sphenoid. Parietal branch passes towards the lambda, but the larger frontal branch is the one that interests us, and that runs forwards towards the lesser wing of the sphenoid, where the greater wing meets the frontal and parietal bones at the pterion, and uh, that is just behind the coronal suture. And, of course, this is the important thing for the extradural hematoma. The vessels don't cross the subdural place, uh, space. They play no part in supplying the brain or the pier or the arachnoid. There is also an accessory meningeal artery, as I've said, um, and uh, sometimes the accessory meningeal artery and the anterior tympanic can arise from the middle meningeal artery, and they can occasionally pass via the frame navale. Uh, very near the quarter tympani. The arteries of the third part, as I've said, just to reiterate, are sphenopalatine, the posterior superior alveolar, the greater palatine, which becomes greater and lesser, really, the pharyngeal, and there's also, I forgot to mention, that there's an artery of the pterygoid canal, um, and that is an artery which runs back, really, through uh, the... Uh, so-called pterygoid canal or vidian canals it's sometimes referred to and that uh, runs along with the combined sympathetic and parasympathetic system which is the unusual part of the pterygopalatine ganglion. The sympathetic system if we remember is the deep petrosal nerve it comes from part of the internal carotid nerve which is running on the surface like a felt mesh meshwork over the internal carotid and then there's the uh, so-called um, uh, greater petrosal nerve as well, uh, which is part of the parasympathetic nervous system. So in this circumstance, the sympathetic and parasympathetics combine together to form a nerve of the pterygoid canal, the so-called vidian nerve. And of course, the terminal artery of everything is the infraorbital artery. It's the same as the terminal nerve of V2 is the infraorbital nerve. So that describes the maxillary artery. There's nothing really complicated if one thinks about it in that way of three parts of five you can always remember its individual branches the other area that we've got to consider is obviously the mandibular nerve or the mandibular division of the trigeminal nerve or v3 whatever way you want to remember it the nerve emerges downwards from the trigeminal ganglion via the foramen ovale and it's a bit like a spinal nerve it's got a sensory and a motor root and at the lower border of the um, lateral pterygoids, it's lying on the tensor palati muscle with the otic ganglion actually lying on its deep surface and it can be approached via the mandibular notch. In other words, if someone opens their jaw, if you open your jaw and put your finger in front of the tragus, you can feel the mandibular notch and that's the approach towards the otic ganglion or the approach towards this particular nerve. Um, it divides, that is V3, after a very short course, into a small anterior, mainly motor branch, and a large posterior, mainly sensory branch. Just to go into these branches again, the branches of the main trunk are one sensory and one motor. There is a meningeal branch, firstly, not to forget that. That's called the nervous spinosis, and it re-enters, kind of like a recurrent nerve, the middle cranial fossa, usually via the frame valley, but sometimes it can go through the foramen spinosum, and it innervates sensory, the posterior half of the middle cranial fossa, as well as the mastoid antrum and air cells, through the so-called petrosquamous fissure, along with some 
twigs to the cartilaginous portion of the um, auditory tube. There's then the nerve, as I mentioned, to the medial pterygoid. It's a bit unusual. This runs forward to the muscle. It provides a motor route to the otic ganglion. There's no synapsing there. It's using the otic ganglion as a relay station, uh, running through the ganglion without synapse. The motor fibres there are for the tensors. So we remember there for the tensor tympani, the tensor pilati. And that's quite distinct, as we've said, from the secretomotor or parasympathetic route of the otic ganglion. The branches from the anterior division, the division is essentially motor, as I've said before, we're just recapping now, except for one buccal branch, and that includes obviously the deep temporal branches, usually there's an anterior and a posterior, but there can be a middle, which can join actually the buccal nerve, there's a masseteric nerve, which emerges through the mandibular notch to enter the masseter, with usually an articular branch to the temporomandibular joint, that's a an example of Hilton's law, if you can remember that. There's a nerve to the lateral pterygoid, which usually runs with the buccal nerve. It supplies both heads of the lateral pterygoid. And then there's the buccal nerve, which runs down on the deep surface of the temporalis. Usually it's got a little fascial tunnel, and it runs onto the buccinator, giving little branches to the skin over the cheek, piercing the buccinator, supplying it sometimes with some proprioceptive fibres and then supplying the mucous membrane of the cheek and the gum of the lower jaw, opposite, as I've said, the lower molars and the second premolar, up as far sometimes as the mental foramen, but that varies a little bit. When we get to the branches of the posterior division, as I've said, that's largely sensory except for one motor nerve. The three branches are pretty sizable. You should be able to see them in a dissection of the infratemporal fossa. And they include, as I've said, the auriculotemporal nerve, which appears as a split root embracing the middle meningeal artery, the nerve passing backwards, really, between the neck of the mandible, and a little ligament called the sphenomandibular ligament, which is deep to the parotid gland and above the maxillary artery. And uh, the nerve usually gives a little branch to the temporomandibular joint, and then it ascends in front of the zygomatic process that where it can be injured in a temporal artery biopsy sometimes if people undergoing that for giant cell arteritis. And the auricular branch of the auriculotemporal nerve innervates the tragus, the upper part of the pinna, the external auditory meatus, the outer surface of the tympanic membrane. And then there's a temporal part which innervates the skin over the greying area of the temple, if you can picture that. And that's the area, as we know, which is pulled up in territory as the brain enlarges. Traditionally, the V3 component runs up along the side of the chin, the side of the face. The, the V3 distribution is actually pulled up to the side of the face. And um, as you can see, that separates away really the area from the angle of the jaw, which is sensorily supplied by the cervical plexus, so in fact the great auricular nerve supplies the angle, the skin over the angle of the jaw uh, in that way, in the great auricular nerve along with the parotid fascia. So these are different to uh, the innovations, kind of filled in by V3, but there's a little area at the angle of the jaw which is part of the cervical plexus. And uh, as I've said, because it's pulled in that way, both the superficial and the deep part of the parotid fascia are innervated by the cervical plexus, and that's why it's like that. The remainder of the auriculotemporal nerve, of course, as we know, carries 
the postganglionic parasympathetic fibres for secretion uh, from the otic ganglion to the parotid gland. So that's the auriculotemporal nerve. And it can be seen sort of splitting around the takeoff of the middle meningeal artery. The second of those sensory nerves is the inferior alveolar, not allowed to call it the inferior dental, but we used to call it that. That lies actually on the medial pterygoid. It's anterior to the vessels that lie between the ramus of the mandible and the sphenomandibular ligament. And it just rapidly enters the mandibular foramen. So if you look at the inside of a mandible, you'll see a mandibular foramen there. The nerve to mylohyde actually just leaves or pierces the sphenomandibular ligament just above that. It lies directly on the mandible, above the insertion of the medial pterygoid. And so then it runs forward on the mylohyde, supplying it, and as I've said, the anterior belly of the, like, the digastric. And so we remember the separation between the anterior and posterior belly of a digastric. This particular nerve, the mandibular nerve, is part of the uh, Meckel's cartilage embryologically or the first pharyngeal arch. So that is the nerve of that region and that's why the mylohyde and the anterior belly of digastric are supplied or innovated by that. Whereas the posterior belly of digastric is not a great term but it comes from the 18th century or so is innervated by the second pharyngeal arch nerve, which is the facial nerve. So that's the thing innervating the posterior belly of digastric and the stylohyoid musculature. Um, and that's why it explains why the difference actually exists. We'll do a, a particular embryology uh, podcast, I think maybe specifically address the embryology of the um, head and neck uh, and the branchial musculature. Um, Basically, that's about it. The uh, nerve, as I've said, lies forward. Uh, this is the nerve to mylo higher. Um, the inferior alveolar nerve supplies the three molar and the two premolar teeth, and it divides basically into a mental nerve and an incisive nerve, so it supplies the pulps and the periodontal membranes of the canine and both incisors. And there's even a little bit of overlap onto the opposite central incisor. The only other big nerve there, which is running medially against the mandible, is the lingual nerve. You can see the two separated, the inferior alveolar nerves running into the substance of the mandible. The lingual nerves running forward and medially deep to the mandible. And this passes between, that is the lingual nerve, the medial pterygoid and the mandible, and it's in direct contact with the mandible just above the posterior end of the mylohyoid line, grooving the bone at the back of the third molar, and that's actually how a dentist will get at that territory if they need to. This is the point of attachment, actually, of the pterygomandibular raphe inferiorly above, uh, uh, inferiorly, uh, and uh, the mylohyoid line uh, below that. Um, and as it enters the mouth, there's lingual nerve, it's on the surface of the mylohyoid, but just beneath the mucous membrane in the floor of the mouth. And it's here, of course, the quarter tympani comes out of the petrotympanic fissure. It grooves the spine of the sphenoid and it joins the lingual nerve and is then distributed with it to the anterior two-thirds of the tongue, carrying all the postganglionic parasympathetic fibres to the submandibular and sublingual glands and the taste fibres, of course, for the anterior two-thirds of the tongue. So we've got those three big nerves, the inferior alveolar, 
the auriculotemporal and the lingual, and the only motor one we've said is the nerve to mylohyoid. Now we're not quite finished this area because we've got a few other little things to consider. We've looked at the maxillary artery, we've looked at the um, uh, at the V3, we've got a pterygoid plexus in there. You don't see that in the cadaver particularly well, but it forms within the lateral pterygoid usually, often rather poorly displayed uh, because in the cadaver because it's intramuscular. And uh, these veins correspond with the branches of the maxillary artery, but there are other routes of venous return through facial veins, pharyngeal veins, diploic veins. There's communication with that. We've got a, a podcast, not the next one, but the following one on the venous uh, drainage of the neck and also on the uh, venous sinuses, and we'll cover some of this in that one. The pterygoid plexus actually receives the drainage of the inferior ophthalmic veins via the inferior orbital fissure as well as the deep facial vein. Now, the inferior ophthalmic vein communicates over the infraorbital margin with the facial vein, runs back within the core of muscles, communicating also with the superior ophthalmic vein, and then draining through the inferior orbital fissure into the pterygoid plexus. The facial vein, actually, at the medial canthus, which is sometimes called the angular vein, communicates with the ophthalmic veins, which then runs back as a superior ophthalmic vein directly into the cavernous sinus. So all these systems communicate. The deep facial vein passes in front of the masseter. And so the plexus receives a vein from the cavernous sinus uh, through the foramen of Ali. Sometimes I've said there is a foramen of Vesalius between that and the foramen spinosum. And then deep to the neck of the mandible usually are a couple of rather stout maxillary veins which run back and join the superficial temporal vein to become or form the retromandibular vein. The deep facial vein provides an alternate pathway for drainage depending on whether there's temporary obstruction to the maxillary or the angular veins. The plexus is actually valved and it sucks blood from relatively incompressible parts like the facial bones and the orbit, and by the sort of pumping action of the lateral pterygoid, it pumps blood back into the maxillary veins. And some people have likened that pumping process by chewing and moving of the lateral pterygoid to a kind of peripheral heart. Uh, the idea has been likened by last, if you like, to the effect of a kind of pterygoid pump, the diaphragmatic return of blood, the stretching of the limbs uh, with you know, removing stagnant blood from pooling and yawning and this kind of combination of activity uh, pumping venous blood back into the central system. There are several additional things that we want to add um, that are little add-ons to this region. Uh, one is the so-called sphenomandibular ligament. We've briefly mentioned this before. Uh, it broadens as a tough, flat band of tissue passing from the spine of the sphenoid, which is just there, down to the lingular and the lower margin of the mandibular foramen. And it's actually part of, uh, embryologically, the perichondrium of Meckel's cartilage, which is kind of chondrified mesoderm on each side of the first or mandibular arch as the maxillary processes to form the upper jaw and the palate. The dorsal end of the sphenomandibular ligament or really the dorsal end, pardon me, of this uh, mandibular arch actually forms the incus and malleus. We'll have, as I've said, an embryology section on this to cement it a bit. 
that it also forms the anterior ligament of the malleus, malleus and the uh, part of the sphenomandibular ligament, which, as I've said, is the fibrous perichondrium of Meckel's cartilage. Um, the lingula is a small kind of persistent part of that cartilage, and the intervening part of that Meckel's cartilage is then the mandible, which ossifies in membrane at about the sixth week. Um, between the sphenomandibular ligament and the neck of the mandible, as I've said, is the auriculotemporal nerve and the maxillary artery and the maxillary vein. And between it and the ramus of the mandible is the inferior alveolar neurovascular bundle which enters the mandibular foramen. The ligament is pierced, as we've said, by the nerve to monohyoid, which lies in the groove on the mandible against the free origin or margin of the medial pterygoid muscle. Mylohyoid artery, which is a branch of the inferior alveolar, is a very small artery which comes at that level, but it's discrete and it accompanies the nerve to form a little anastomosis with the submental branch of the facial artery. And the argument is that the ligament prevents a kind of over-distension or distraction, if you like, of the mandible inferiorly. The lateral pterygoid and the auricular temporal nerve are lateral relations to the sphenomedibular ligament. The quarter tympani nerve is medial near its upper end, and the medial pterygoid is then inframedial. So one has to get one's head around that little structure, the little structures that are um, straddling the outer and inner surface of this uh, sphenomandibular ligament. The ligament itself is separated from the neck of the mandible by the termination of the maxillary artery and from the ramus of the mandible by the inferior alveolar neurovascular bundle. We've reviewed the otic gang then, but it's in this territory. I'll just do a quick recap on that. We have reviewed it in A. HN4, which is the uh, one on the autonomic nervous system of the head and neck. But in brief, as a summary, the otic uh, ganglion lies, as I've mentioned, uh, between the tensor pilati and the mandibular nerve, just below the foramen ovale. It's a little flat two millimetre structure, quite closely applied to the nerve, rather than being a discrete nodule. And its task, as we, we know, is to uh, relay parasympathetic nervous uh, synapses for the parotid gland. The preganglionic uh, uh, nerve is the lesser petrosal nerve of the glossopharyngeal nerve. And postganglionically, it hitchhikes along branches that are going to be in the territory of the parotid, so that is hitchhiking along with the auriculotemporal nerve. A motor root branch from the nerve to the medial pterygoid traverses it, uh, that is the otic ganglion, to distribute the nerve supply as we've said, to the tensors, tympani and pilati, and a sensory route runs through as part of V3 with the auriculotemporal nerve with the sympathetic route derived from the middle meningeal artery as postganglionic fibres that have originated from the superior cervical ganglion. They've originated further than that, but they've come from the cervical, superior cervical ganglion where they've synapsed. The ganglion is connected, um, that is the otic ganglion, uh, to the quarter tympani nerve, also to the nerve of the pterygoid canal. And these pathways provide really an alternate pathway of taste from the anterior two-thirds of the tongue. Um, laterally is the trunk of the mandibular nerve at the point where the motor and sensory roots join. Um, medially is the cartilaginous portion of the auditory 
or pharyngotympanic tube, and the origin of the tensor palati, and posteriorly is the middle meningeal artery. So we need to then move on uh, to the pterygopalatine fossae. These are interrelated to what we're talking about. Um, I might have a 30-second music break. That mightn't be a bad idea. extend this just into the pterygopalatine fossa. It's a small but discrete space. A lot of the anatomists ask quite a lot about this area, but it is important to conceptually grasp it. It's a discrete space that lies really between the back of the maxilla and the front of the pterygoid process of the sphenoid bone, and it directly communicates with the depth of the infratemporal fossa. I think one should think of it as a sort of room or corridor with entry and exit windows whose task is really to be a relay station concerned with the nerve and blood supply to the middle third of the face. And it cannot be strictly seen very well in the intact skull, but it communicates with the lateral depth of the face at the pterygomaxillary fissure. So in effect, what you've got is that the roof is the foramen rotundum, just to briefly go through it, and at the back near the roof is the pterygoid canal, or vidian canal. And at the outer lateral aspect, near the lateral pterygoid plate, is the fissure we've mentioned before, the pterygomaxillary fissure. So going through the pterygomaxillary fissure are the maxillary arteries and coming out of the maxillary veins. So you've got the vascular supply going into the pterygopalatine region. Then through the roof is the foramen rotundum, so that's V2. That's the sensory component to the middle third of the face and the paranasal sinuses and glands. And then through the back of the roof, you've got the autonomic nervous system coming, as I've said, by the combination of the sympathetic root, which is the deep petrosal nerve, the parasympathetic root, which is the greater petrosal nerve, and that becomes the nerve of the pterygoid canal or vidian nerve. So all of this is going through the pterygopalatine fossa, the vessels, the sensory supply um, or afferent sensory nerves and the autonomic nervous system. All of that relays through only the parasympathetics synapsing in the pterygopalatine ganglion and then everything is distributed, as I've said, to the infraorbital region, the middle third of the face and then, of course, into the nose via the sphenopalatine foramen into the palate, as we've said, by the descending palatine canal, and back through the palatovaginal canal into the pharynx. And so, really, that's how all of these glands get their blood supply, their sensory uh, innovation, and their autonomic um, nerve supply. And that's the way the system works. The boundaries, of course, of the pterygopalatine fossa are the back of the maxilla, lower part of the lateral pterygoid process, are interposed by a small part of the pyramidal process of the palatine bone. 
On the lateral side, the nose, the maxilla is separated from the medial pterygoid plate by the perpendicular plate of the palatine bone, with the greater palatine canal opening inferiorly onto the hard palate. So the pterygopalatine fossa is bounded posteriorly by the roof of the uh, sphenoid bone, that's the area contains the pterygoid canal and the foramen rotundum, so both of those are contained within that part of the body of the sphenoid. Medially is the palatine bone with the notch basically forming the so-called sphenopalatine foramen, and anteriorly by the posterior wall of the maxilla, and the roof therefore is effectively the body of the sphenoid and a bit of what's called the orbital process of the palatine bone. Now, leading in, as I've said, on the lateral side is the pterygomaxillary fissure. So in go the maxillary arteries, out go the maxillary veins. In the roof is the foramen rotundum, we're just reiterating here, and that leaves the fossa to pass laterally in the inferior orbital fissure to reach the infraorbital groove and foramen. The pterygoid canal, which is also in the roof but a bit more posterior medially, passes nearer the region of the foramen lacerum, and from behind, below and medial, if you like, to the foramen rotundum, that houses the nerve and the artery of the pterygoid canal. Um, and then those are the entry points, basically, into this little room or corridor, which is the pterygopalatine fossa. The exit points, obviously, are the things we mentioned before. It's got to get out into the nose, and it does so medially via the sphenopalatine foramen. Part of that is by the um, orbital process of the palatine bone. It goes inferiorly into the palate, as we've said, forward into the hard palate, greater palatine foramina, backwards into the soft palate, lesser palatine foramina, and then it runs back through a little area called the palato-vaginal canal as a vaginal process of the palatal bone, and that basically is the pharyngeal uh, uh, artery or the pharyngeal nerve, and this is the running back into the palato-vaginal canal in the roof of the nose. So in summary, again, I'm just reiterating so that it's in people's minds, the borders of the pterygopalatine fossa are formed by the palatine, maxillary and sphenoid bones, Anteriorly is the posterior wall of the maxillary sinus. Posteriorly is the pterygoid process of the sphenoid. And the inferior part is the palatine bone and those palatine canals. Superiorly is the inferior orbital fissure. Medially is the perpendicular plate of the palatine bone. And laterally is the pterygomaxillary fissure. The contents, as we mentioned before, the fossa contains the maxillary vessels and the maxillary nerve the pterygopalatine ganglion. The ganglion sends its branches out to the nose and palate, and V2 supplies, as we know, the upper teeth, the floor of the orbit, the skin of the face, and the paranasal sinuses. We mentioned it before, but I'll reiterate that the maxillary nerve gives a meningeal branch to the front aspect of the middle cranial fossa, and then passes, as we've said, via the foramen rotundum into the pterygopalatine fossa and the apex or roof of that, and it ends as the infraorbital nerve. Here, of course, the zygomatic nerve actually comes from there. It enters the orbit via the inferior orbital fissure. In the fossa itself, V2 gives off numerous branches, which, as we said, would mirror the arteries there, the infraorbital nerve, the zygomatic nerve, the nasopalatine, posterior superior alveolar nerves, a pharyngeal nerve, greater and lesser palatine nerves. 
V2, of course, directly communicates with the pterygopalatine ganglion via a couple of small trunks. Some people call those the pterygopalatine nerves. They're not synapsing there. They're just using it as a relay station. And in some texts, these little nerves that attach to the uh, V2 actually suspend the ganglion. It looks a little bit like the submandibular ganglion suspended from the lingual nerve. Uh, and so there are some schematic diagrams that one can trace up to see these. The pterygopalatine ganglion in this region, as we've already said, is a relay station between the superior salivatory nucleus in the pons and the lacrimal gland, and the mucus and the serous glands in the palate, the nose and the paranasal sinuses. Um, if you like, some people call it the ganglion of hay fever. It's not a bad way to think of it. Uh, the parasympathetic root, of course, is via the nerve of the pterygoid canal through the greater petrosal nerve. That's part of uh, the seventh nerve via the nervous intermedius, which is going back and back a bit more. The sympathetic root, as we've already said, comes as the deep petrosal nerve running on the carotid artery. This is actually coming from the superior cervical ganglion. So these are postganglionic fibres. And then there's a sensory root, as we've said, from the branch of V2, with its cell bodies in the trigeminal ganglion. The branches, of course, of the pterygopalatine ganglion are to the lacrimal gland, but that's via the zygomatic and then hitchhiking or jumping across to V1, the lacrimal nerves, as well as to the mucous glands uh, in the nose, the nasopharynx and the palate by typical branches of V2. There are some taste fibres in the palate as well, and they'll run in the greater petrosal nerve with their cell bodies in the geniculate ganglion of the facial nerve in the middle ear. The pterygopalatine ganglion lies in front um, of the opening of the pterygoid canal, just below and medial, as I've said, to the foramen rotundum, and therefore the ganglion lies below and medial to the maxillary nerve, or V2, with a comparatively large trunk connection between the two structures, as I've already mentioned. The branches of the ganglion all carry sensory, sympathetic and parasympathetic fibres, and these appear typically, as these vary a little bit in text, but as the nasopalatine nerve that used to be called, actually, the long sphenopalatine nerve. There's the lateral posterior superior nasal. That's a, a mouthful. Formerly, that was called the short sphenopalatine. There uh, uh, really goes to the superior lateral nasal quadrant. We'll discuss that a bit greater, the quadrants of the nose, not only the lateral aspect of the nose, but also the nasal septum. They can be divided into posterior, inferior, posterior, superior, anterior, superior, anterior, inferior. So these are part of the posterior, superior aspects of the nasal septum. And then there's... As I've said, the greater palatine, these are continuing branches of the pterygopalatine um, ganglion, the greater palatine, the nasal branches supply the postero-inferior quadrant of the lateral nose and the medial wall of the maxillary sinus. The lesser palatine nerves, as we know, which go to the uh, soft palate and to the palatine tonsil. The pharyngeal nerve, as we know, which goes back across through the uh, palatovaginal canal to supply the back of the pharynx near the region of the tonsil. And uh, there may be one or two very fine orbital branches which enter the orbit via the inferior orbital fissure. 
and they supply part of the periosteum of the orbit, the so-called orbitalis muscle, which is a little bit of muscle in that region, the mucous membrane also of the sphenoidal and ethmoidal sinuses can be innervated by that uh, region. Um, I had a little um, diagram which I'm just looking at, which we can relate um, in some way. Through the middle cranial fossa, of course, is the trigeminal ganglion. Uh, through the foramen rotundum is the maxillary nerve, and this continues through the inferior orbital fissure is the zygomatic nerve. It goes through the infraorbital canal, where it becomes the infraorbital nerve. It runs through the sphenopalatine foramen as the nasopalatine nerve. It runs through the pharyngeal canal, or the palatovaginal canal, as the pharyngeal nerve. It runs through then the palate, as we've said, as the greater palatine and lesser palatine nerves. And uh, that's basically it. Um, there are a few other areas that need to be um, just finished off um, in this region. Uh, the TMJ, I suppose, um, the osteology of the mandible, which we'll leave, I think, for another time. We'll briefly mention just, I think, the temporomandibular joint um, uh, in this region, and that'll allow us just to summarise. Um, the temporomandibular joint, uh, squamous temporal bone, mandibular fossa, and the head of the mandible, it's a synovial joint, separated into upper and lower cavities by an articular fibrocartilaginous disc as an atypical synovial joint without any hyaline cartilage. The capsule is more spacious above with the disc moving forward with the head with a posterior attachment nearer the temporal bone without much sort of posterior movement. And so the disc is rather asymmetrical and undulates with a thin centre and supported um, instability by the lateral pterygoid, uh, which inserts uh, into it. The joint is supplemented in front by a lateral temporomandibular joint ligament, which tightens as the head is retracted, as well as in jaw opening, with the sphenomandibular ligament included as a kind of accessory limiting ligament of the joint. The nerve supply, as we've said, is from the auriculotemporal nerve and a few fibres from the nerve to masseter. Mechanically, the joint is most stable with the teeth in occlusion, and these stabilise the mandible on the maxilla with some limitation of forward movement of the condyle because of the configuration of the articular tubercle and because of temporalis contraction, but also some contraction on one side of the mandible by the masseter and on the other side by the medial pterygoid. Backward movement of the TMJ is limited by the configuration of the joint, the lateral TMJ ligament, and by the lateral pterygoid. And despite that, obviously, forward dislocation is the only real way that can occur. The normal gape um, uh, is about um, two fingers slightly separated. That would be one way to think of it. The mandibular movements act as protraction and retraction, so-called protrusion and re retrusion, if you want to use that word, depression and elevation, which is basically opening and closing of the jaw, and a side-to-side -side or slewing kind of grinding movements. So protraction is largely the function of the lateral pterygoid. Retraction is the temporalis. Depression is a really hinge movement, but there's also a gliding movement on the disc 
So the lateral pterygoid pulls the head forward, the chin is pulled down and back. So it's an accessory mastication muscle could be included in that activity. That would be the posterior belly of digastric. And that axis of movement passes through the mandibular foramina and it swings around the sphenomandibular ligament, which kind of holds the mandibular foramen at a constant distance from the base of the skull. So you can think of that swinging around an axis. Elevation's a bit different, closing the jaw. Obviously, we've got more muscles that do that, most of the muscles doing that. So that's the masseters, the medial pterygoids, and the temporalis, and they slam the jaw shut. In small movements of the axis of movement, there is through the head, whereas wider movements, it's also through the mandibular foramen with the head moving sort of forwards and downwards. So in summary, the lateral pterygoid is, in a sense, the odd man out by helping to open the jaw. The side-to-side or slewing or grinding movement is a combination of the medial and lateral pterygoid. And one, I think, could also add the movements of the floor of the mouth, the action of the two mylohyoids. There's equally the geniohyoid, the stylohyoid. They determine the AP position of the hyoid bone, with the mylohyoid rafo being passively lengthened or shortened, a little bit like a sort of accordion or concertina. The elevators of the floor, obviously, are then the mylohyoid, the geniohyoid and the stylohyoid, everything above the depressors are all the infrahyoid musculature, and I suppose also the platysma. So um, the next podcast that uh, we're going to do, I think having completed this area of the infratemporal and pterygopalatine fossae, hope the, that's uh, clear. Um, the next area we're going to talk about will be the arterial circulation of the head and neck.